Hey, Paul Zamek, how the hell are you? Ling Starchless, I didn't breathe. <laughs> I know, I'm amazing. very well made. I have your nail polish. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I got I got these on the other hand, too. So. Oh, excellent. Um, excellent. And I don't know, you, you never saw the uh, the tattoos, the, the rock and roll. No, uh, I never saw those, man. But I see them now. I like them both. I got both them for my... Yeah, I got them for my uh, 45th birthday. Of, you know, one of those uh, weird, you know, mental health crises, I guess. I would say midlife crisis, mate. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, more than midlife. I mean, at least for me. Um, anyway, so for those who those for those who don't know, Paul, um, why don't you, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself, like your your history? Because first of all, Paul is absolutely fascinating. So. Um, this this is going to go all over the place so i'm just i'm warning everyone in advance but anyway paul all you anything thank you thank you very much well first of all i was born in south africa in cape town and um i, I went to lots of lots of different schools i was the naughty i got the further i got sent away so i finally got sent to a boarding school it was like about 800 900 miles away mm -hmm. but uh, all my life i've been involved and interested in music from the time i was six years old so as soon as I got my first job, um, I phoned the um, secretary or the personal assistant of the branch manager of a big record company in Cape Town every day at exactly the same time, 11 o'clock, because it was mm -hmm. my tea time. I phoned her every single day for three months, like Chinese water torture, bang, 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 bang. Love it. Have you got any, me, anything to do? So finally, they gave me an interview. I walked into the guy's office. I was 19 years old. He said, I can't give you a job as a sales rep. You're like, you know, you're just out of school. Mm -hmm. so i said well listen never mind about that how much does the job pay so he just looked at me and he said i did pretty random we worked the month uh so i said i'll tell you what i'll do i'll i'll, I'll give you an offer give me the target that you want me to set your sales target that you want to set and if i don't reach that sales target in a month i will pay you the 120 rand that you were supposed to pay me and we'll call it quits so that's how i got into the music business as a hustle and i haven't stopped hustling though Oh, no. uh, and I've done everything from from uh, being a country salesman selling eight tracks and uh, little gramophone needles mm -hmm. uh, through the school of hard knocks mm -hmm. uh, to becoming a concert promoter to getting to my combi and selling records from the from the back, mm -hmm. you know, um, book, booking agent, uh, artist manager, and eventually the the company that I persuaded to hire me for 120 rand a month, I landed up on the board of that company uh, in sitting in the chairman's office. They gave me the chairman's office. I had nothing Amazing. else to do. Amazing. And, um, so that was 1980-something. And then 84, um, I was a joint manager director. I call myself a joint manager director because I just like mm -hmm. that title. And, uh, and in South Africa, you, know, you, can, you can buy a shoebox of cannabis for like uh, $5, $5. So um, as joint manager director, I um, I received my NR guy received a phone call one day from a guy called Roy Halley, who Paul Simon's producer, longtime producer, mm -hmm. and um, we thought it was a punk. We thought it was a blog reader, one of these punk calls, you know. Um, that he was going to be on the radio, so I said to this guy, his name is Barry. I said, Barry, phone him back, and if he's if he answers the phone, then he's, it's really him. Mm -hmm. um, then yeah, let's talk. It turned out that Paul Simon was in was exploring African music. Mm. and wanted to speak to us. We were an independent label. We had, and when I say independently, in those days, uh, the Indies were Motown, Island, Virgin, you know, right. A&M, you know, Arista, they were all independent. Mm -hmm. And we licensed all those, all, those, all those independent labels. So we were a great company. We had a great studio as well. So Paul Simon at that point was signed to Warner Brothers here in the States. But he, he didn't want to go through Warner's for some reason. He called us as an indie. So we put together what started off as a one or two songs and it ended up to be like a giant archaeological dig into the bloody, uh, into the vaults. Because right. in those days, no MP3s, there was telex and there were cassettes. Right. So we, he used to dump them on cassette and mail them to him in New York. And then he would feed back. And so long story short, that turned into Graceland. Oh, excellent. Yeah, that turned into the Graceland album. And we thought it was going to be very big in Johannesburg and Cape Town. We had no idea. What it was going to be, it won five Grammys. It was the beginning, the birth of world music before Peter Gabriel or anything else. It was Graceland. Right. So that's how it came to America, actually, on the coattails of Graceland. That's incredible. See, that's this is why I love talking to you because I, that's a story that I didn't know about you. So, and I'm sure there are thousands of them, but um, 
you know, just for, for reference, I still use the, uh, the time that we met. I mean, literally, I just met you when we started walking down the street. You know, I think it was like five blocks to the Hotel Majestic. And like every 20 feet, somebody would stop. Hey, Paul. Hey, Paul. Hey, Paul. You know, so you're, you're definitely a mover and shaker. Um, yeah, we, I want to talk more about that later on because I, I had a great time that, that meeting. That was a lot of, a lot, a lot, a lot yeah. of fun. Um, so you ended up in the States. And did you, did you initially move to Nashville or was that after? No, I moved to Nashville. Um, you know, I've been there many times. I mean, in South Africa, when you when you travel to, from South Africa and you go anywhere, you you try and do the whole thing. I mean, you wouldn't go just to London. You'd go into New York because you're out of the country. You might as well move. Mm -hmm. So I would always come to Nashville because it was one of the three major music centers in America. Mm -hmm. And I fell in love with Nashville because I was, I was standing at a traffic light one day and I saw an elderly gentleman in a car reading what I thought was a newspaper. I thought to myself, this must be real fucking slow. This must be real slow mm -hmm. for a guy reading a newspaper at a bloody traffic light. And I looked closer and he was reading sheet music. <laughs> That's incredible. And I just imagine what was happening in his head because he was reading the music and he was playing it in his head. And I thought to myself, this is exactly where I want to live one day. Mm -hmm. So I made up my mind in that moment and I worked towards it. So when we arrived, my, my late wife and I, we arrived in 1985 with five animals. Uh, and uh, $3,000 and a few phone numbers. And that's how we started. Oh, oh. And, and by the way, condolences on, on, on your wife. Um, very incredible lady. Um, yeah, so again, there's so much content here. I don't even really know where to start. So I'm just going to kind of ramble a little bit. All right. Um, so at, at one point, at what point did you start managing acts? By default, by total okay. default, because I was I was I was not a manager in South Africa. It's a, South Africa is a very small music scene. You know, one or two artist managers, and they mostly relied on the re record labels and the booking agents to help them with their careers. Mm -hmm. As you know, in America, it's a whole whole different scene. So um, I was working with a band called Exile from from Kentucky, great band. Mm -hmm. They did "Kiss You All Over" and they had thirty number one consecutive country hits. And the one of the guys. Uh, one of the lead singers, Les Taylor, left the band. And I'd worked with him in South Africa and become, became really good friends. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, he asked me to manage him. So I kind of just fell into it. And I, I, luckily, I'd gone through all these other various stages of, of the business. So I kind of knew what was what, and who did what, and you know, who played the role. Mm -hmm. And all I, all I did was make sure that I was assembled a great team and just sort of manage that team and they had the vision for the artist, but he was already signed to a label. So I walked into that. Ah, um, yeah. And then I was, then I was asked to manage a gospel quartet called Stamps. And they were Elvis's um, gospel quartet. And there was a whole different world for me traveling on the bus and doing love offerings instead of bloody your fee. There's no fee. It's like a love offering. Well, how the hell do you budget on a love offering? Did, um, I'm sorry. Did, did, did you have to, do you have to watch your language? I mean, cause you know, I know you're like me, you know, like profanity just kind of flows right out of my mouth. So. Well, I can't tell you too many stories about that particular moment because these guys are religious guys. But mm -hmm. Put it this way. It was an interesting time because <laughs> uh, there, was, there were a lot of things going on uh, that you wouldn't have thought of. But they're all great guys and, mm -hmm. one, and wonderful guys. And so we changed the name of the group uh, we were going to become the new sort of opening point, but that didn't happen. So I moved on to other things. I was managing a young woman from Liberia. Um, I met her through a friend of mine who was in Belgravia in London. We went to this place when we had a major party. And Benny Medina was there. And Benny Medina at that point, he Benny is the guy who handles J-Lo and Mariah Carey. He's got a big, big management company. But he was the guy upon which the Prince of Bel Air was based. It was his story. Really? His actual story, yeah. And he was, at that moment in time, he was writing the treatment for it. The film wasn't in the PVC, it hadn't even been made yet. Mm -hmm. But he was working for Warner uh, and, and R. And the guy who I was my best friend ran the international division of Warner Brothers, London and New York. So then he happened to be in, in London and we were running around at that time in a bloody limo. And the guy had a cell phone 
which looked like a shoebox, you know, one of these enormous things, you know, there's enormous things. Anyway, so during that evening, this friend of mine was an arms dealer and unfortunately was murdered um, for something to do with his job, I'm sure. Um, he, he suggested I listen to this girl from Liberia, and then it was Anna Constance, and she was fantastic. So she came over here and did a, a showcase at the Cotton Club in New York. Mm-hmm. And I had all the charts written out for this, like, you know, 12 piece band, blah, blah, blah. Got there on the day of the sound check, threw them the charts. The charts were written in numbers, like the, the national number system. Mm-hmm. So these guys in New York, they go, What the hell is this? They had no idea. So I thought, Oh, shit, because we've got the gig that night. Everybody's coming. So I had to rush down to get some manuscript papers and I had to get some guy to come and transpose all this, like six or seven songs that were charted onto from the number system onto the actual music charts and they could read the charts and they could play that part. That's so funny. Another story, but anyway, so that's that's part of my management thing. I'm now working with a girl from Muscle Shoals, Alabama, uh, called Pasha, her name is Pasha Hill, and she's doing a gig next Friday night in Huntsville. And so, you know, I just, I still keep my hand in it. Excellent, excellent. I mean, obviously, I want to talk about one of the one of the people you managed, but I just want to make a comment. Like when when the first time I was in Nashville, I remember suddenly it dawning on me. And I think it was a meeting with you and whoever we were meeting with was like, "I've got to go. I've got to be in in Mobile, you know, in like forty five minutes or whatever." And I'm like, and it. I know it sounds stupid, but it was the first time it dawned on me how close <laughs> Nashville is to Alabama. Like, I mean, it's right there, and and I don't know. It it doesn't yeah. seem like the South at all, but it, yet it, it very much is, right? So, anyway. And that was just yeah. Nashville is like maybe an hour and a half drive to Huntsville with the, the awesome. rocket center, and we were like maybe one and a half hours to to Kentucky to Bowling Green. Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. I mean, I've I've said for a long time, like if I was going to move out of Seattle, I would I would probably be Nashville just because. Really, man. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, I like it. I like it. It's still relatively inexpensive, right? Yeah. Especially compared yeah. to the West Coast. Um, yes. And there's just a lot of music going on, you know. Um, oh, it's great, great city, yeah. very good. I think. Yeah, I mean, uh, apparently the occasional you know guy who sets off a bomb in the middle of the city, but other than that, you know, that that was just amazing. Well, it was the first time. I remember Betty Christmas Day as well. I mean, my God, I haven't been here since. I mean, you know, really spoil spoil everybody's Christmas because he was having a bad day. Yeah, no. You could, just, you could just put a gun in his mouth and go over it. Yeah, I'm still amazed that nobody was actually killed. I mean, that's well, that obviously it's for him. Yeah, yeah, but absolutely amazing. So, okay, so you, you know, you you started managing, and, and you didn't just start managing, of course, in typical Zamex style. You know, you started with like somebody big and kept going, right? Um, yeah. How did you, how did you meet and end up managing Kenny Rogers, and what, what what's the story behind that? Well, first of all, I never managed Kenny Rogers, as per se, <clears throat> but uh, I met Kenny when he came to Sun City, and I was the I was his label guy. And uh, so I looked after him and presenting him records and all this kind of stuff and, and sort of setting up with Ken Cragen, who was his manager at that time, was wonderful, mm-hmm. wonderful manager. Um, and so when Kenny came to, to San City, it must have been probably 1981, 82 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Kenny Rogers was the, was the biggest artist in the world at that point. I mean, right. he was just massive. He'd done, or he'd, he'd sort of segwayed from country to just being Kenny Rogers. So he arrived in his own bloody airplane uh, with a whole bunch of entourage, fantastic. And he was just, we, we got on really, really well. And so mm-hmm. and he left, I stayed in South Africa. When I came here uh, to Nashville, Kenny, uh, we, we, we remained in contact and Kenny was starting his own record company called Dreamcatcher. And Jim Mazza, who was his record guy in LA, was, became his partner. And for the first time in Kenny's long, beautiful, illustrious career, he was free of any kind of uh, major label commitment. Mm-hmm. So at that point, he decided to start his own company called Dreamcatch Entertainment. And he asked me, him and Jim Mazza asked me to come on as the international guy. So what I did was, so I was part of the management team. But as far as management was concerned, Ken Craig was still managing Kenny. And Jim Mazza was kind of co-managing Massacre. And then Got Jim it. had his own team around him. So my role was to 
um, which was great, was to do to initiate all Kenny's new record deal and uh, and manage his manage those relationships worldwide. So what I did instead of I, I could have signed into Warner Brothers International or any of the major international that had done with me, but I decided what I would do is because Kenny was such a visionary and such a scholar of the business, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I could learn so much from him, uh, and I did, I decided to do independent deals in most of the territories for two reasons. First of all, I would have a much stronger personal relationship with those labels. So I signed something like maybe 15 or 16 independent deals in sub, sub-territories. Wow. So for, 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 for Scandinavia, it was one company. So the UK was another company, et cetera, et cetera. And I set them up like that. So that um, it was a little bit more work, quite a lot more work, actually. But what we got was, I decided there and then, because Kenny, uh, he gave me carte blanche to, to do stuff. So we started to do some duets with um, some of the local artists in the various countries mm-hmm. for three reasons. First of all, it gave Kenny... Um, the opportunity to interface with the superstar, the local superstar's fan base. It gave the local superstar, bring his fan base into Kenny. And mm-hmm. it also gave the local population a chance to see this great superstar uh, singing a couple of words in their own language. And it was just a great, it was a great thing yeah. all the way around. So that was, that was a lot of fun. And that lasted for about three and a half, four years. We did some really good business. And then eventually, um, I moved on to something else within that organization. That's amazing. Amazing. I, I'm just, I'm, I'm trying to imagine keeping 16 or 17 deals straight though. I mean, I, I had, I had difficulty doing like one or two, so I can't imagine having to, uh, having to do that. Um, well, you know, luckily it was medium. And, uh, at that time, was, there was no South by or anything like that. And the, the main, and still is the premier, music marketplace in the world is medium. And so I did a lot of the work there. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, just um, at that point in time, I'm trying to think then, I think email was just starting, but mostly, mostly it was like taxes and things like right. that. Yeah. 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 There are some industries that are still that way, like the mortgage industry is all faxed. They, they refuse okay. to use emails. It's, everything is faxed. So yeah. I unfortunately learned that doing a work for a mortgage company. Um, yeah. Software work, mind you, which was even more frustrating. Um, so, <clears throat> so let's talk about Medium a little bit. Are, are you still actively involved in, in Medium? No, um, I stopped uh, representing Medium about three years ago. Um, but it's, I still go. And I was there the last time just before COVID hit. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm online with, with the whole Medium Africa um, um, seminar, for three-day seminar this last week. And I get all the stuff and I still know all the guys there. I'm still very friendly with them. They're mm-hmm. still connected, but I'm no longer working for them or representing them. Okay. Yeah. We had fun, didn't we? we oh, yeah. Oh, oh, my God. I, I, I still talk about it all the time just because it was it was such a weird. I, it, yeah, it was surreal. Surreal. Um, you know, like the, the story I was telling you last time we talked about um, sitting in the, at the bar of the Hotel Majestic and um, well, first of all, my bar bill was astronomical because I was buying people drinks like an idiot, not realizing they were like, this is what, 2005, and I think the drinks were 17 euro, something like that. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'm sure they're, they're much, much, much more now. Um, so I brought my American-style appetite for alcohol over, and uh, <clears throat> it certainly added up. But, you know, sitting at the bar, and, and I forget names now, but but I met, uh, talking to this guy for like 20 minutes, and, and uh, at the end I was like, hey, you know, well, you know, we were talking about licensing and stuff. And at the very end, he's, I was like, hey, um, you know, what is it, you know, what is it you do? Because I'd never asked the question. And he was the president of Harry Fox. So, um, <laughs> you know, you just, you never know who you're going to run into. Yeah, um, yeah. So this is a great jumping off point. Okay, so uh, some of the, the medium stories. Um, and you're going to have to help me with names because I don't remember who we talked to. But um, I remember we, we had a little table in, in what I think was a closed off section. Like, I think... We were the only people there for whatever reason, yet the bar was very full. That's all I remember. And it was like a round table. And there were a bunch of oh, guys there. Do you, do you remember at all? I, I remember it was at the Majestic. The Majestic, and, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and the, 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 the main lounge area was packed. And we yeah. found a little, little alcove. 
yeah, it was awesome. It was, you know, great. I mean, it was nice and quiet, you know, whatever. But I remember I, I made the, the mistake of, of talking or asking one of the guys, and you'll know the name. I think he just recently passed away, like a year oh, or two ago. Russ, Russ Reagan. Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember asking, like, what do you do, you know, or something stupid like that. And he just he said, well, I, I produce, I've produced some, some music. You know, that's all he yeah. said. And I stupidly followed up with, like, well, like who? You know, like, a, you know, and he's like, I don't know. And I forget the bands he named, but I, I'm certain one of them was he's Beach Boys. Out, John. He signed Elton John. Yeah. <laughs> he, he signed Neil Diamond. Yeah, it was Quite just amazing. Yeah, yeah I, I felt like such an idiot, you know. And then he's like, well, what do you do? And I'm like, I run a digital music company, <laughs> you know, like that nobody's ever heard of. So. Well, in those days, man, in those days, you were way, way ahead of the game. I mean, you were right yeah. from the very edge. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't really want to talk about that time, but um, it was uh, it was it was a lot of fun, a lot of fun. Um, you know, I, I think at our peak, we had something like two and a half million tracks or something like that. Um, you know, but... there's, 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 there's nothing more frustrating than being too far ahead of the game. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think it, I'm not sure which is worse, being behind the eight ball and not being able to catch up or being right. ahead of the game and, and just you know, seeing somebody else follow you a year or two later and do exactly what the hell you were doing. And now they're suddenly they're successful. And you've gone into something else because whatever you were pioneering in those days didn't catch up. And I think that's kind of what may have happened to you in those days with your vision and your energy and everything that you had going for yourself. Uh, Glenn was just phenomenal, man. I loved working with you. Uh, thanks, man. Thanks. I, I think we really dropped the ball when we started working, you know, basically competing, with, trying to compete with touch tunes. And that, that never went anywhere. Like, it was such a disaster, you know. Yeah. Um, that's, that's part of why I don't want to, like, to talk about it, you know, because it's... Um, Painful. Yeah, my, my, my lead investors were horrible humans. So, um, or I, I'm sorry, they weren't horrible humans. They just made some bad decisions. And, and because I had taken on so much money from them, I kind of was beholden to whatever they had to say. Yeah. Right. So, anyway, live and learn. Um, it's the last time I, I did anything with digital music. Let's put it that way. <laughs> um, yeah. So, but, but you didn't manage it yourself. Yeah, sort of. I mean, I dabbled in it a little bit, um, and it's a great way for me to lose money. Just like my record yeah. label stuff, I you know I always lose money on it. It's you know a passion project. Yeah. Um, but you know you quickly find out that many musicians are um, childlike. I guess how's that? Yeah. Um, there's, a, so... there's a certain sort of uh, thin wall between the creativity mm -hmm. and and everything else. Yeah, exactly. So, exactly. There's also, um, and I know I'm talking about the band I manage specifically at all, but um, there's a, a certain sense of entitlement, even from, you know, people who only sell 50 seats, you know, yeah, that yeah. Is, is really weird. And, and, you know, I have certainly met tons and tons of, of great musicians. And I have to say that because 99% of, of the people who come on my show are musicians. So <clears throat> I'm not talking about you, you know, anybody who's been on. Um, but yeah, there, there's there's this sort of, uh, and, and I think it happens with artistry in general, though, right? I yeah. think artists just generally, um, entitlement is not the, quite the right word, but I think you know what I mean. You know, there, there's a... You have to have a certain confidence and a certain ego attached to, and, and a lot of the artists that I've worked with over the years are two completely different people. They're one animal on stage and a completely different animal off stage. Mm -hmm. And they can be real quiet off stage and they come alive on stage. Or, or who knows, quite opposite. But I, I sort of liken it to like, you know, when an artist takes off, and this is just general, I'm not pointing my finger at anybody's at all. But when an artist first takes off, they're the sweetest, kindest, loveliest people in the world because they need you. Mm -hmm. When they get to a certain plateau, they become absolute fucking assholes. <laughs> right. And they don't care, you can't even talk to them anymore. And they just go, me, 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 me. And then they plateau, and then they start to either dip, and they become very nice again. Right. So, you know, right. And it's kind of the graph. It's kind of like the career graph. You know, you know, two years to get there, one year to to be there, and two years on the way down. So it's a five-year career span. <laughs> right. And right. and the temperament goes with the, with the sort of the waves with the graph. You know? Yeah, yeah, and definitely. I mean, I, I've met a lot of extraordinarily, you know, humble musicians. Um, you know, to to the point of of, and I've had a few on my podcast too. People I've known for a while, but even 
just saying something like, you know, hey, you know, I, I really appreciate your music. I'm, you know, I'm a fan. And they're very humble. They're like, oh, that's amazing. You know, and then, you know, some in some cases, we're talking about people who sold, you know, not millions, but, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of units, yeah. you yeah. know, and they're, they're, you know, extraordinarily gracious, you know, and there are others that um, aren't, aren't so gracious. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. like you will say, you know, the, the exact same thing. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a fan and they'll say, so fucking what? Right. And you're like, well, I'm just, you know, I'm just trying to say that, you know, I, I appreciate what you do, you know, um, I would never say that to anybody if they, they said they were a fan of anything I did, you know, I'd be, I'd be very, very humble about it. Yeah. Um, but it's, I, it's, 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 it's a huge responsibility, Glenn, as you found out, that in management, this, the commodity is such that you're dealing with this, this somebody's talent, somebody's soul, basically, mm -hmm. giving you the, um, the, uh, responsibility of looking after their very being and so therefore one has to be really really careful one has to always think of the artist's uh, well-being and looking how, how can you create the platform for this artist um and the one thing i used to say to my artist was that you know i expect you to work twice as hard as me um mm -hmm. because i can i can go to another room and find another artist right you on the other hand are stuck with yourself that's it. You can't find another you. You are you. <laughs> That's true. So, you know, therefore, it's your life. On the other hand, you know, be careful with it at the same time. Right. How? So, I, you know, I've read a, a lot of books about, um, you know, the music industry and whatnot, and, and mostly, you know, memoirs from, from rock stars. And, and um, one thing that I, I found really interesting is a lot of the managers that would... Um, really get involved in the personal life of, of the artists that they're managing. Um, and I'm thinking, you know, people like, you know, Doc McGee, for example, who was very, very, very like, you know, into, into everything that happens and, you know, in the social lives even of, of you know, as artists. Um, for yourself, like, how did, I'm trying to think of the right way to phrase the question. How, how, how involved did you get with your, with, you know, the people that you were managing, your artists? Well, it's a, it's, it's, it's a fine line. Because that's why they call it a personal manager. Right. You know, because you're managing the person. So it's not, a, you're not the business manager. You know, you're not the uh, A&R guy. You are the personal manager, mm -hmm. which means that you have to take this thing very personally. It means that you have to get involved in these people's lives. Mm -hmm. And besides setting it up properly, you know, for, for example, never ever uh, suggest an, an, an attorney never ever suggest a an accountant what i would do is i would say here's a list of five people five attorneys and five business managers or five accountants and you interview them and you choose i don't have anything to do with that choice that's your choice right because i don't want to touch your money at all so that's the first thing that i would do is i would separate myself from that aspect of the business i would give them uh, advice and, and then once they've chosen i would of course interface with, us, with, their, with their team um but yes i mean when the artist is having a few drinks on the road and, and he or she is phoning me at three o'clock in the morning and bawling your eyes out or, or screaming at me about whatever the case is you have to take the call mm -hmm. you have to educate them you have to bring them down you have to uh, put a dummy or pacify in their mouth with some nice uh, some nice attachment um, but yeah, it's very personal. It is, and you become involved in your life. There's no, you, there's no, you know, you can't be a little bit pregnant. You're either in or you're not. Have you read um, the Heroin Diaries, Nikki Six's autobiography? No. Okay, it's a really fascinating read, and it's a really fast read too. But um, the the beauty of that one is that he actually kept it. It is literally his his diary entries, you know, from from being on the road. Um. But th there's a couple of scenes in there that are, that are really interesting to me. And one is where he would, you know, like three o'clock in the morning, like you said, would, would call his manager and say, I need $25,000, like now. And, you know, he it's would need it. Of course. Yeah, it's exactly. Yeah, exactly. That, which is why I brought yeah, him up. Yeah, he lives in Nashville, by the way. Oh, does he really? He's a fascinating guy. I actually met him kind of in, in, in Tokyo one time. A friend of mine called me up, and I was living there at the time. And he called me up and he said, you have to get down to this bar right away and didn't tell me why. So I went and it was karaoke 
and it was half of Iron Maiden, Bruce Dickinson and, and Steve Harris, singing karaoke, and Doc McGee sitting there with his, you know, his infamous cigar, you know, and they were yeah. just hanging out, just like having a great time singing Iron Maiden songs. Great. For karaoke. Yeah. What a, what a memory. Yeah. Um, I didn't really get to talk to anybody, but, you know, it was, it was fun. And I, I didn't have a phone or a camera with me, so it was like super bummed. But other than that, it was a, a blast. And it was funny because I don't think anybody in the bar knew who they were. Yeah. And it was, it was kind of an expat bar, too. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was when Bruce had just cut his hair, too. So, you know, he, he was kind of unrecognizable. Um, but one guy in the bar actually said, you're not as good as the original or something along those lines as he was singing one of the songs. And I thought that was hysterical. <laughs> right. So, <clears throat> yeah. Um, so I, I was going to ask a question about if you had ever gotten phone calls like that, but I won't. But so anyway, what, what Nikki Six would do is, you know, he'd call him, you know, Doc in, in the middle of the night, basically, and say, you know, hey, I need, you know, X, whatever. And it was always for heroin. Right. I mean, it was never for anything else. It was just like, hey, you know, I need to I need to get my fix. And it eventually got to the point where they, you know, hired mediators and, and, you know, therapists and all sorts of things that, that, you know, would, would basically interject at that point. But he would basically just say at first, sure. Right. And then eventually he had to get to the point where it's like, look, you know, you're in danger of dying. I can't do this anymore. And so to me, I found that a really interesting conflict of, of interest because well, not a conflict of interest, but, a very bad situation to be in, right? Because if you say no, you run the risk of your your artist basically saying, "Well, fuck you," right? And and moving on. Um, but if you say yes, then as as the manager from from a fiscal standpoint, you run the risk of your client dying, and then you're out of money. So it's sort of a no win situation, right? Yeah. Um, and that's something that that there's no way that I could ever deal with. Right. I mean, because the, the, the moral conflict to me would be um, super high, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, you know, there's a fine line between being an, an enabler uh, to, to the nth degree where you can actually drive this person over the edge or, or risking, you know, um, your, your relationship just, you know, bombing. And there's nothing worse or there's nothing anybody can do. If an artist is, un is uncooperative, um, and they can do that just like that, you know. Yeah. I'm, I'm working with a couple of platforms at the moment that are in the technology area. And um, what I find very encouraging at the moment, I mean, you and I, as sort of pro artist people, um, there's a lovely sort of movement of, towards transparency. Uh, with the Article 17 in the, in the EU and the UK and the mm -hmm. MMA here with the MLC being created to finally uh, have some royalties on streaming, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so the, the movement is towards transparency and fair compensation for the artist. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I think people are beginning to realize, and I hope that I'm certainly one of them, and I've always known this, is that the artist always has the control. Unfortunately, since the 1700s when the publishing and everything came into being, they went from patronage, from, a ro from royal patronage mm -hmm. to indentured servant. Right. Through the, through the contractual you know, labyrinth. And so they are the creators and they are without, without a song, what well, there's nothing. Without a performance, there's nothing. Nothing to do. There's no industry. Mm -hmm. But they've always been sort of the on the on the lower end but even or not mm -hmm. just generally with all the different contracts they've got recording agreement publishing you know all this other kind of stuff and so they know they don't own their own work well what's happening now is that artists are beginning to understand this that they have the control so and there are a lot of platforms that are being developed right now which is is leaning towards that and making sure that the artist through whatever technology is available uh, on an app um, mm -hmm. can manage their can manage their own career to the extent look where their royalties are and divine their own sort of copyright controls and all that other kind of stuff. That's exciting. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, 
one of my my first guests um you know a good friend of mine um he was on a, a label in seattle that i bet you can probably guess the name of um and they still owe what is it i, I forget the exact numbers but high five figure mid five figures i guess um on on advances that they received in 1989 yeah. right I mean, there's, there's well, it's like, it's like a college, it's like a college, uh, whatever they call it, a college loan or whatever they call it. Yeah. Um, it follows you for the rest of your life. And it will follow you to your next label as well, unless the label forgives it, or unless the other label buys it off. You know, you're going to be, you're going to have this thing around your neck. Yeah. And the, the most interesting part is that he didn't even know, I had to show him, um, he's not a very technical individual, but um, I had to show him that, you know, the number of plays he'd gotten on, on the, you know, Spotify and, and, you know, title or, you know, all of the, the various sources, he didn't even know, like there was no accounting at all that came back to him from those. And because of that, that wonderful clause that, that most recording agreements have, which is, you know, or any, you know, future format that may be invented. Right. Yeah. So no control of the music whatsoever. It just kind of goes everywhere. And, yeah. you know, the, the reporting is, is abysmal if, if, existent at all yeah yeah well now with nfts as well non-fungible tokens as well it's another whole revenues generating item or area and we begin to think of you know what where, where are the rights is that is, does that fall under whatever technology could be invented in the future and they also have this else has the territory the level for the universe i, the, yeah, I love that <laughs> i love that clause <laughs> I mean, why wouldn't you try to put it in, though? I mean, I, I don't blame record. In fact, I put that in just no. because I find it kind of funny more than anything. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, like, no, you don't get money because that was streamed on Mars. Right. No, I exactly. mean, <laughs> so, you know, when it comes back here, yeah, it's going to be different. But there's also another thing which artists don't understand. And that is a <clears throat> accounting thing called CTA. Mm -hmm. Charge to artists. And so a lot of the times when an artist is having a wonderful meal after the gig and they're having a fantastic time, they're inviting all their friends over, blah, 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 blah. Right. When they get their royalty statement, they see, well, that dinner that I had at that restaurant with, you know, all my friends, I mean, I thought the label, because the label guy picked it up. He said, I'll give it to me, I'll, I'll take it. You know, so he signs the check and he gives him the card, so it goes right back to the artist. So yeah. that's, part of, and that's part of the under recruitment sometimes. I mean, not all the time. It doesn't happen all the time, for sure. I, I know of, yeah, I know of at least one case where a, a very unscrupulous record label um, sent an artist flowers, like a, an enormous, you know, super expensive bouquet, and charged them for it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's like, you know, come on. Or or charging for phone time. That's another one that, that I've I've heard of. Um, I don't know how how common it is, but you know, oh, you know, well, we had to talk to you on the phone, and our cost is you know X. Um, I, it could be an isolated case, but I, I've I've heard it. Yeah. Um, I haven't heard that one. I haven't heard that one. But you know, I've heard that, of course, the attorneys and notorious with a little clock on the oh, deck. Yeah. I mean, I'm I, I'm I'm hoping it's an isolated incident, and I also hope I didn't give any record label execs any ideas. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> you never know. You know, you never know. Um, I I do know though that there have been cases of of um, where a, a label will hire somebody to. Um, do something mundane for the artist, right? Like, like not managing, not publicizing, not, you know, I don't know, some, something really silly. And, you know, they'll, they'll share that cost amongst artists, right? So they say the salary is 100 grand a year and they have, you know, covering 10 artists, they'll charge, you know, the artist 10 grand a year for, yeah. you know, something really stupid, like an admin assistant or something like that that doesn't really directly work with the artist, you know, or yeah. at least shouldn't be. Yeah. Um, sort of like a paralegal, right? Um, yeah. Which has always pissed me off being charged lawyer rates when you know a paralegal is working on it yeah. right i mean that that's infuriating to me Absolutely. Um, but so what do you think about things like you know spotify what do you, what do you think about the the streaming industry well it's, it's here it is you know i mean right. it's, yeah you have to live with it um i think that you know the lion's share of the of the revenue doesn't go to the streaming industry it's to the streaming services the dsps it goes to the label, basically. So mm -hmm. They're all right. And then the, the label decides who, who they're going to pay and how they're going to pay. Mm -hmm. So I think um, 
Well, two things happened just recently. Number one, Sony forgave a lot of the advances. I don't know if you read that stuff. No, ago. wow. Yeah, they forgave a lot of the, just what we're talking about right now. They said, well, mm-hmm. what the hell? Let's, let's take it off the book. So a lot of these artists are now free. So that was fantastic. Um, a lot of the um, publishing companies, Warner Chapel, Universal, they've got their own portals now where the songwriter can go in and they, they can calculate their own royalties right there and then. They may be able to take advances of what's potentially coming towards them. So there's a lot of that wonderful stuff going on. And I think it's got to do with the, the newer generation, the millennial generation that have seen you know, what happened and don't want to go down that road again and start to make these very positive changes. But getting back to your question, the, um, you know, the splits, when they first started these DSPs, as you probably remember, um, they had to recalculate, they had to recalculate uh, the calculator. Because when they did royalties, there was no such thing as 0.001% in the case of say. They had to re- actually reinvent a bloody machine just because the royalty was so infinitesimal, so minuscule. Right. Um, and so the difference is that in the old days, when you bought a record, you bought a record for whatever it was, $20, let's call it $20, $10. And you could play that record a, a million times if you wanted to, in one version. Now it's exactly the opposite. Every time you listen to a song, you pay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the complete dichotomy. That's the complete difference between then and now. As far as the rates that are the DSPs are paying for the songwriters um, and the performers, that's a whole area that I don't, uh, I, I, I can't even comment with. It's so bloody tiny. You know, you can get a million plays and you can get $5,000 or whatever it is. And that $5,000 goes to the artist. And out of that $5,000, the artist's got to pay everybody else. Right. So it's it's a globular figure given to the to the writer or the artist, and then you've got to pay your argue manager, whoever's on your on your team who needs to be paid. You have to pay them out of that money. So mm-hmm. it's a really bad. And with, and with the uh, COVID cutting down, you know, stopping all the touring, you know, shocking stuff. Yeah, I mean, and then there's there's of course the IRS, which most bands probably don't really think about, right? Unless they have a, a good manager who, you know, like yourself, an ethical one who's a, set up an LLC and do, you know, all of this stuff. Um, but I I had um, Gary Lee Connor from Screaming Trees on uh, two months ago, I guess, and apparently what happened is his story is really interesting. So apparently there was a IRS agent that um, Young, you know, wanted to make his a name for himself. And he had found a band um, on, you know, on, on a Seattle label. So I'm just going to say a fucking sub pop um, yeah. who he thought weren't paying their taxes. And, and the reason he came upon that is he went to one of the shows and saw them selling T-shirts and stuff for cash. And the guy just putting cash in his pocket. So he was like, OK, well, I'm going to audit this band. Right. So he audited the band and then. You know, of course, nobody, nobody pays money on, on their merch. I mean, nobody pays taxes on, on merch. I mean, unless they're, a, a, you know, big, right? And we're talking, you know, a 200-seat club. Like, you know, nobody's going to bother. Yeah. So he made his, his entire career for about a year auditing bands. Almost exclusively on Sub Pop, from what I understand. I, I don't know all the details. And, um, yeah, so, so the band on well, Screaming Trees um, ended up owing a bunch of money. Which, you know, they had an LLC in one, but they, they didn't really understand what was really happening, right? Um, yeah. Because they're musicians, not, not you know, business people. Yeah. Um, anyway, at, at some point that finally stopped, um, I think, because the IRS is like, why are you going after these people who are like, you know, $100, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. like, it's, the whole thing is stupid. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, yeah, anyway, uh, there's, there's a lot of pitfalls, I think, with... Um, the music industry and musicians and and i think people are definitely getting smarter you know the musicians are, are definitely smarter than they used to be yeah. um and not nearly as starry-eyed you know like yeah. I, I know cases where bands have turned down you know fairly decent you know six-figure you know advances because like it's not worth it we'd rather do it ourselves yeah, yeah. well i think ownership is important and i think the artists are beginning to realize that owning your own compositions owning your own masters 
earning whatever you can is your real estate. I mean, that's your property. Mm-hmm. Well, and especially the publishing, right? Yeah. And and that's something that I don't think a lot of artists understand even now. Um, because that's, I mean, we could probably talk for three hours about this, so I don't want to really dive into it. But, I mean, that to me is one of the most corrupt businesses there is. And, and you know, as, and basically you, you would be an idiot to give away even, you know, 20% of your publishing rights as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Right. Because I would always advise my artists to keep everything you can and rather just hire an admin person at 10% maximum and let them do your accounting. They can do all that stuff. If they can administer your catalog or something. Right. But keep it in the scientific PRS or PRO, you know, ASCAP, BMI, CSAP. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can handle the performances. Um, but that's, that's basically trying to do everything in hand. Yeah. It, it's, it's, um, I, do you think that, that record labels are becoming more ethical or less ethical as, as they consolidate? I think they're becoming more ethical. And that's just me being sort of, you know, um, optimistic. Right. I, I think there's a new breed, uh, younger people, not so much the cigar chumping, you know, welcome to the machine kind mm-hmm. of guy. I think that there are people who are much more much more sympathetic towards the artist's um, situation and are helping them um, in that area. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I hope you're right. It the, the consolidation worries me a lot. Um, but I mean, it's already, it's already done, you know, and, and I think it's feasible that we might end up in a situation where we have one label or two labels, right? Yeah. Because we're well, basically down to that. three now, right? Yeah, exactly. We're going to be one of those soon, Glenn, if it's not already, we're going to be three of everything. Three hamburger or three fast foods, three, uh, you know, cold drinks, three cars. <laughs> yeah. it, but, it, but, never, but, never, but never three political parties. No, which is weird, right? It's yeah. so weird. Um, yeah, I mean, well, politics in the U.S. is, is yet an, another one of those those albatrosses that we could we could dive into. <laughs> um, uh, you know, one thing we haven't talked about at all is is COVID, and I'm I'm actually kind of glad because I think this is the first time. Of course, I just brought it up like an idiot, but I think this is the first time I've I've done a podcast where we haven't talked about COVID. Um, and the, the reason I'm bringing that up is is kind of getting back to the politics in the U.S. Because um, I found that, first of all, YouTube will not monetize anything that, that mentions COVID, for the most part. Um, unless you're a big, big guy. Like, Joe Rogan can get away with it, and it's perfectly fine. I can't. Like, I can't even do an advertisement to promote this podcast. Probably. Oh. Because we, we talk about COVID. Really? Really. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, and it took me a while to figure out why. Um, it, it started with... Um, uh, Blaine Cook from The Accused, and he was like, he was my second guest, and you know, so I was still kind of cutting my teeth. And he also owns, um, or used to own two restaurants. Now I think it's down to one. Um, and I was just asking him how you know things were affecting his business. That was it, like nothing controversial at all. Um, and when I submitted an ad to YouTube, um, they have an, an automated system that basically goes through and you know checks content which is terrifying to me. But anyway, so they do that. And they immediately came back and said, no. Wow. They, they denied the ad simply because we were talking about COVID. Huh. Yeah, because it's considered a controversial topic. Oh, but, uh, but current politics isn't. Uh, well, see, and this is what I don't understand, you know, because I, I know people who do monetize. And my goal is never to monetize, by the way. I don't, I don't care. This is an, an act of love, you know. Um, but... I know people who do monetize, you know, and they, they talk about COVID and, and they'll have people on that, that are, um, you know, controversial, I would say, you know, in, in their, in their opinions yeah. and they're fine. So yeah. I think it's, I think it's more of, of, uh, you know, the, the smaller guy kind of loses out, you know, in, yeah. this, in this situation. Yeah. Um, and there are other topics that you can't talk about. And actually I'll send you the, in case you don't, if you haven't read it already, the, the, uh, the YouTube, um, I forget what they call it, but basically it's, uh, um, a code of conduct. That's the, 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 the user, the euro, the, euro the, the user licensing agreement or something like that. Yeah, but there's a name. It's a really like draconian name too. It reminds me of, of like the movie Brazil. You know, it's like YouTube something. 
I, I forget what it is, but I'll send it to you afterwards just because it's, oh, it's, it's an interesting read. Um, like you can talk about um, anything sexual. You can talk about anything like that, but, you know, there are certain things that you can't talk about that are, are within that realm. Um, it, it's just, it's so weird. And drugs, same thing. You can talk about drugs, but if they think in any way that you're promoting or whatnot, you Setting. can't. Yeah. Um, and I, I had to walk that line recently because I had a guest on who I'm, um, actually, let's talk about marijuana. Because I finally read, I finally listened to your uh, um, uh, smartest smartest person in the room podcast. Oh, did you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a great one. And why that doesn't have more views, I don't know. Because it, it's a it's a really interesting podcast. Um, I didn't know that you were involved in 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 that industry at all. So, yeah. do you want to talk about that a little bit? Well, I've I've been a user since 1967. You know. Well, good for you. Yeah, and I've never had a bad one. Um, but actually, what happened was that I was co-producer of a concert here in Nashville um, on November the 12th, 19, uh, sorry, 2019. Mm -hmm. And uh, James Burton, a wonderful guitar player, you know, mm -hmm. his 80th birthday. So Brian May from Queen came in and Joe Walsh came in and everybody wanted to play with James. And I was lucky enough to be one of the co-producers. Anyway, so backstage, there was this really, really great effect. Here it is, this thing. Um, it was this great line of, of CBD products called KM Relief. Oh, okay. And they were, they were, it was in the green room. You know what? You know what's called the green room, by the way? It was during the Elizabethan time, the Shakespearean time, mm -hmm. when the artists and the actors were sitting one little tent on the side. But they also made sure that there was some lawn, some grass, that they could sit in the charts for the green room. That's, anyway. that's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, so... So this is the packaging. It's very nice, and this, mm -hmm. is, this is all sort of being sampled to the um, to the artist. And I love this artist. Right? Mm -hmm. I found the guys because I was involved in the CBD business on another on the level. And I said, "Man, I really enjoyed your product. I took it home and I used it and it worked." And they said, well, "Why don't you like to join us and sort of you know, become part of the team?" So I did. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that KM stands for Cushmaster. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, because I phoned, I phoned the guy one day and I said, well, by the way, this, what does KM stand for? It's the Cushmasters. I said, Cush is the young. Turned out that these guys are um, award-winning um, cannabis purveyors. Mm -hmm. And they they won like, you know, the first and second prize of the High Times Award, blah, blah, blah. It's just a lovely bunch of guys. Two two brothers mm -hmm. started it. And so they're, they're based in Boulder, Colorado. You know, no mm -hmm. surprise and um, they're doing a tremendous business in the state of Colorado with 300 dispensaries. They're just now shipping to Michigan and Nevada. Because it's, it's very high, as you can imagine, highly, highly regulated. Right. You're probably in Washington. Oh, yeah. Um, and so, therefore, if you are, uh, if you're, if you are manufacturing um, cannabis, it has to be the grow has to be in that particular state. You can't be across state lines. All that kind of stuff. Anyway, I'm involved in it, and we've just signed. Um, I introduced them to uh, Floyd Mayweather Sr., the, the famous boxer. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a line called, we have a line called Fifth Element 5E, which is a 5,000 milligram CBD. It's the highest milligram in the market. It's really mm -hmm. strong for fitness-focused people. And um, so Floyd is our spokesperson, our brand ambassador. And we went to mm -hmm. Vegas a couple of weeks ago, and we did some, some, you know, some fights and stuff like that. That's incredible. And so, yeah, and to, to, for me, you know, marijuana and music, I love. I mean, right. what? Yeah. I, I believe you, you. I believe you called it Eminem, and it was funny because yeah. I, I, I kind of, I wasn't really watching. I was kind of like, you know, doing something else, but I had it in, you know, in the background, the the right. podcast, and. I was like, why is he talking about Eminem all of a sudden? Like that that was so weird. And it was like I went back and listened. I was, oh, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> I was like, what is I mean, I'm sure Eminem smokes a lot of marijuana, but you oh, know, yeah. I, um, and I'm sure that Eminem, I'm sure when you smoke marijuana, you like enjoy, enjoy a few Eminem. <laughs> right, exactly exactly. See, that's that's my problem. I, I have only recently started um well, about a year, year and a half maybe. Um, because I, I never liked it. I didn't like the high. And I realized it was because I always did it after I'd been drinking. And so the high was totally different. The, the body rush, I just couldn't stand it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then when I started doing it um, more recently, it, it's almost all edibles. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, I way prefer, I don't like the smoke at all. I don't like the taste of it. I don't like the smell of it. No, I don't. Um, yeah. And also, it, it's not good for the old chest, man. Not at all. Mm-hmm. No, then again, I mean, I'm a heavy smoker, so. Um, but it hurts a lot more than than cigarettes do. I mean, a hell of a lot more. Well, because um, the cigarettes, you know, you inhale it with, with grass, you you just suck right. it in. It's, you know, right. it's a whole different uh, method of inhalation. What what is the, the legal status in Tennessee right now? I, I oh, should have looked it up. The last state in the union, they're probably just burning the stake in their family. <laughs> That's right. They they probably have they probably have you know agents listening to this right now saying oh oh let's go after that Zamex house <laughs> right. <Yes. laughs> it's good. Yeah. I, I'm sure if they did that though, uh, Nashville is I'm sure crawling with uh, <clears throat> people with large amounts of marijuana sitting around. So yes, they would be busy for quite some time. They would be exactly. They'd be very busy. Yeah. Yeah, I, I assume it's probably something like like Austin, where where the police kind of are like, yeah, fuck it, you know. Versus yeah, like you, in Houston, they'll they'll take you down, you know. So yeah, uh, no, I think there's a certain latitude here, you know, with uh, with the artists and the entertainment business and everything that keeps Nashville Nashville. Right. They're not going to not they're not going to try and jeopardize that. Yeah, no, I mean, and it's just silly. I mean, the whole thing is silly. Um, mm. You know, like technically, I I break the law because I. Um, a friend of mine makes edibles that are incredible. I mean, like, you know, 250 milligrams sort of incredible. Um, yeah. And you can't buy those in the store. I think we max out at like 125, I think, something like that in, in Washington. Um, but yeah, you know, half of a, even half of a 250 milligram, and you're, you're feeling pretty damn good. That's a lot, That's a lot yeah. yeah. And the thing with edibles is that, you know, you never know if it's going to hit you in the middle of a sentence two hours later. <laughs> You know, I love that. I love that. And, and I know that that's what a lot of people don't like. Yeah. But one of my favorite things to do is like eat one of those cookies and then fall asleep because the dreams yeah. are just like insane. The dreams are unbelievable. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, my wife, when Des, um, I didn't, she, she got lung cancer. So we didn't smoke around her. And I, I stopped smoking cigarettes about 10, 12 years ago. But anyway, and I used to smoke like a trooper. And I loved every single cigarette I was smoking. Yes, 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 you, you know? did. <laughs> I remember her. <laughs> You remember? You you gave me a run for the money, buddy. <laughs> anyway, so what she did was she boiled the the, the cannabis um, with in just an olive oil, and she made her own extraction. Mm. So I uh, took a, like maybe half a teaspoon, and nothing happened. So I thought, well, this is, this is no good. So the next day, I took a tablespoon, <laughs> and, and I was fine for about five six hours. And I was backstage with an artist talking. And as I say in the middle of a sentence, I suddenly went from here to what? I was doing <laughs> and that lasted for about two days, man. Talking about dreams. I mean, uh, shit, I couldn't even sleep. Yeah, the extracts are, are, they're crazy. Absolutely crazy. I mean, once you use them to like cook something up, you know, they lose a lot of potency. So, you know, it's fine. But yeah, I, I made the mistake with uh, butter one time. I was making yeah. uh, um taffy or something so caramel that was sort of what's caramel my girlfriend was making caramel and i tasted some of the just the raw butter yeah same thing man and it took it took a long time to kick in you know probably two or three hours yeah and when it did yeah when it did i literally was laying on the bed and holding on to it like i was going to fall off (laughs) you know (laughs) i know the feeling that well Kushmasters they make it's mostly concentrates they don't have any smoke there's no there's no flour it's oh. mostly concentrates and edibles. And they have the gummies and the caramels, and those are the award winning stuff. But they have, they have the rosin and the butter and the shatter and all that other kind of stuff. And I've been to their factory and I've seen how they do it actually. It's, it looks like uh, honey. It looks right. like because they extract them, they press them down, and then they sort of roll them out. It looks like honey coming through them and they have sheets and they, they basically mm-hmm. bake them. And then Bob's your uncle. Yeah. I, I shatter is evil i've only done it once and just pure master. Evil. It is oh. master. man that and dabs which all the cool kids do right yeah I've done, dab pipes. yeah i did it exactly once and i would never ever i mean i used to do a lot of lsd a lot a lot a lot yeah. i would say i was higher from a dab than i was from yeah. from any of the lsd i ever did i mean i was just yeah. out yeah and they're not these great little dab things but you know the thing with that is that look, I'm I'm an old old chap by now, and I've had my run with all the stuff in the last forty years. But um, I can't really re- I don't know how to regulate this edible things concentrate. 
Right. You know, when you could smoke, you kind of knew, okay, I, I'll smoke a half a joint or whatever the case is. You know that like in the next 10 minutes, you're going to get stoned and this and that. But with this thing, you just, you just never know. It's kind of luck of the draw, really. Like it is. Sure. It totally is. Um, like I said, I get my, I'm going to say on the gray market. So basically on the gray market is where I get my edibles. And yeah. sometimes they're like outrageously strong. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's just an estimate, you know, because the person who makes them says, oh, yeah, they're approximately 250 milligrams. I'm like, well, approximately <laughs> can, can be a big number, right? Yeah. So, no. um, yeah, I can usually tell by how they taste, right? If they taste like weed, I know I'm in trouble. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like, seriously. Well, you, know, you should go into the Cushmasters.com is, uh, is the website. Yeah, I'm um, going to. Have a look at their, at their product line. It's really interesting. And of course, if you're in anywhere near Colorado, uh, let me know because I'll send, I'll give you a tour of the facility and then I can send you home with a couple of samples. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, they, they don't sell in Washington? No, no. No, that's it's too bad. It's Colorado now and then Michigan and Nevada. And hopefully mm -hmm. we'll spill, you know, we'll expand. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it's, it's amazing how much money some of these dispensaries are making. Like, it, it's oh, absolutely oh. insane. It's uh, outrageous, and, and Chris Matthews as well is pretty successful. Yeah. There's a lot of money in this game. There, there is, and one one of the uh, one of the first dispensaries here in in, in Seattle, um, Ike's, which now I guess has multiple stores in Oregon and and Washington, I think. Um, their original location is something like eighteen thousand square feet, um, and they were making so much money <laughs> that, and obviously they couldn't bank it anywhere. Right, yeah. which is it's still the case. Um, yeah, so all in cash, and I, I've heard, and you know, I'm probably wrong, but what I heard was at one one point they were making well over a million dollars a week yeah. from their yeah. one location in cash. Like, I mean, what do you do with that cash? Yeah. Well, you know, th th that's become a problem because they become these things have become targets, you know, for yeah. robbery. Because everybody knows that there's no banking system, right. so. That, it's a cash business basically and there's always cash on hand so that's another problem yeah anyway. it's, it's amazing um well this has been a great conversation again i'm so glad that uh oh ditto man. ditto years. ditto um and I, I i have to go here in just a minute i'm sure you probably do too but um i i always end with with two questions right and for you this is going to be kind of an interesting one so um everyone hates this question which is why i ask it um by the way all right what's your favorite band my favorite band uh-huh yeah see nobody likes current, current currently or, well all time current. all time if you want answer how you want well at the moment i'm i'm enjoying um the black keys i like everything they do they're interesting yeah they're yeah. really interesting i'm also enjoying black humans so i'm into black music at the moment I suppose. <laughs> right did you say um, black peas Black humans. Oh, okay, good. I was like, Paul, 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 come on, buddy. I, I know you have better taste than that. <laughs> no, black humans. You know them out of Austin? I don't. Never heard of them. It's kind of a, it's a, it's a trio. It's kind of like a rocky, bluesy, uh, solely kind of thing. It's really good. Huh? Excellent. Uh, and then I suppose all-time bands in the world, besides the Beatles, because that's <laughs> a given, you know. Mm -hmm. I suppose uh, Roxy music. I used to love Roxy oh. music, everything they ever did. I love that. And um, lately, more than lately, uh, Muse. Who? Muse. Oh, they're yes. really interesting too. I, I didn't like them at first, but it was more of I just didn't like the people who liked them. I think. <laughs> right. And then, then I started listening to them, and yeah, they're they're really really tight. I mean, really really good band. Um, I, I the same as as a. Uh, um, Oh my God! Never mind. I can't even think of the name. It starts with a P. Very similar, and it came out right around the same time. Anyway, I'm totally blanking. The kind of androgynous male singer, also out of the UK. But anyway, um, they did they did a great cover of of uh, Running Up That Hill. Oh, Running Up the sure? Running Up the Hill, Running Up That Hill. Oh, oh yeah. Bush song. Okay. Anyway, I'm so embarrassed. I can't think of the name, but. Have you heard of a band called Elba? I have. Yeah, I yeah. have. I have. Nice um, band. 
Yeah, there's a uh, there are a lot of great bands out there now, um, and I basically stopped listening to music or quote new music for a while. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm what's going question number two? What's question okay, question two? number two is, is this is my favorite one, and then on this we're gonna wrap it up. Okay, what is something about Paul Zamek that nobody would know? I'm not gonna tell you. Okay, how about something unique about Paul Zamek? How's that? Um, I was born in a core which supposedly gives you a second sight. So my wow. whole face was covered in skin. And when my mom, when I was born like that, uh, the, the, the matron or at the, at the nursing home, her husband, I was born in Cape Town, which is mm -hmm. with the um, two oceans meet in Cape Town. And the matron or the lady was in charge, the nurse, uh, her husband was a sailor. And so she asked my mother to give her the call so she could put it in a little leather thing to give to her husband to keep him safe while he was on the sea. That's, that's something I've never told anybody. That is really fascinating. Like, I, I've never even heard of that, that condition. I think it's like spelled C-A-U-L. I think it's spelled C-A-U-L. Wow. And it's, it's supposed that I'm Pisces as well. And it's supposed to give you a second sight. Um, and I am susceptible to moving furniture. <laughs> why does that not surprise me i mean it, it totally just doesn't even surprise me um in fact nothing about nothing you say is really surprises me paul like you could be like oh yeah no i was you know i was the best man at, at you know the the prince and Di or you know uh, charles and diana's wedding and i'd be like okay yeah that makes sense i love it i love it paul you're a total rock star thank you for taking the time man i really appreciate it yeah you finally did this magazine for many months yeah, and, exactly. Uh, please come to Nashville. Oh, I will. I will. Actually, come and do the podcast in Nashville. I'll set you up with a bunch of interesting people. Uh, that doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> um, you, you, you have like probably the, the largest Rolodex in the music industry that I know. So um, that's awesome. Paul, hey, thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your day. And let's, uh, let's make it not 10 years in between next time, okay? Absolutely. All right, brother. Love you. Bye. Thank you.